0: Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would change our countenances from sorrow to joy, that in living lives of joy we would glorify you in all things. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be O acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. One of the things in this life that I truly, truly enjoy is sharing a long and leisurely meal with friends. I think perhaps because of our wonderful Christmas party this past week, that has been on my mind. And as I've thought about Christian joy, I've thought about some of the meals I've shared over the years with people. One that comes to mind was at the end of a summer where I was overseeing a group of interns on a little island in Maine, we had a last supper, if you will, with one of the board members. And this was an odd supper because as we were having it, we were also preparing for a hurricane to hit the island. And so it made an interesting taste for it. There was something unknown about that evening because we didn't know what the next day would hold. Would the hurricane hit us with its full force? Would it swerve out to sea as it so often did? Or would it diminish as it hit the colder waters of the North Atlantic? But we fellowshipped and enjoyed each other's company, and there was something in the air that night of a joy that was so poignant and close to one another. We enjoyed each other's company and delighted in one another. And perhaps you know this feeling that I'm trying to describe, this joy of having each other together. And I think part of the reason why this is so poignant for Christians is because it is a foretaste of what is to come, a foretaste of the joy in fellowship which we will experience when we are joined together in the heavenly kingdom, when we finally have perfect fellowship, when we finally love one another in completeness, when we finally know what it really truly is to walk with God. There are many foretastes like this in this life, the foretaste like that I've mentioned before of a fellowship meal, the foretaste of our fellowship meal when we come to the Lord's table and break the bread and drink the wine, which is but a taste of the coming to the marriage feast of the Lamb when we will have perfect unity with God. <clears throat> These foretastes give us joy because they show us what is to come. For a long time, I had a problem with the word happiness because it's a relationship to the word happenstance. Happiness... In my mind, implied an arbitrariness, but I don't think that that was a fair thing. <clears throat> Happiness, if we understand it truly, is like this foretaste. It's like seeing a friend from afar away who we haven't seen in months or years or decades, and yet our hearts bubble with joy, with excitement as they draw closer. Happiness is that feeling. Happiness is that foretaste. This morning we read Psalm 100, a psalm which you are more than likely familiar with if you pray the morning office with some amount of regularity. If you've prayed it as often as I do, you don't even need to look at it to know what it says. It's not only memorized, but ingrained. Psalm 100 is fitting for this last Sunday of Advent, because it reminds us to be joyful for what we look forward to. It reminds us that we as Christians are to live joy-filled lives, not lives that are oblivious to the discomfort and hardship of this life, but lives that are made joyful because we know what is coming. We know one day our fellowship will be complete with the Lord. Now, as we go through this, I'll mostly refer to the ESV version because the version that's in our prayer book is from the Coverdale Psalter, which is only about 500 years old. And so the language is perhaps a bit dated. And there's a few points where they make some odd translational choices. But nonetheless, the Coverdale version is rather beautiful. But the ESV pulls out some things that I think are more fitting we are invited into this joy-filled praise and service to God. The Coverdale says, be joyful in the Lord, but it's more accurately described in the ESV. But even there, I think it falls a little bit short. The ESV writes, make a joyful noise to the Lord. It means make a loud Noise. This this word, make a noise, is most often used to describe an army going into battle. The loud clamor of an army coming together as they shout to drive off the fears, to make the other army fearful, shouting to make them run away. We make a loud, a joyful noise, not because the world is easy, not because... Living in Christ is the easiest thing we've ever done. But because we know the end of the story, we can shout with joy even in the face of darkness. We make a joyful noise to the Lord. And the psalm says that all the earth is to do this. Because all of the earth is God's creation whether we recognize it or not. All of the earth Belongs to him. And so all the earth makes a joyful noise. All of creation aches and groans and longs for the coming of Christ. Make a joyful commotion. Isaac Watts captures this beautifully in a paraphrastic hymn of Psalm 100 called Before Jehovah's Awful Throne. He describes it as bowing before the Lord with sacred Joy. Make a sacred, joyful, loud, commodious noise before the Lord. The Lord is our joy. The Lord is our happiness. The Lord, his service and praise is good. We come to verse 2 Serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing. Service and worship of the Lord cannot be divorced from one another. Worship alone and without service is dead worship. St. James writes that we must do both. Faith without works is dead. But likewise, work without faith doesn't bring us much of anywhere either. Israel left behind faithful service. Their worship became hypocritical and thus God's judgment came upon them. So much of the prophets which we read describe that as they pursue worldliness, pursue other gods, and give merely lip services to Yahweh. No, we must be faithful in service and in, in faithfulness. Romans 12.1 describes this service as service of our whole lives. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Ourselves, our souls, and bodies are given in service and worship to the Lord. And this is possible, of course, through Christ alone. But why should we worship the Lord? Why do you worship the Lord? Why do you take time out of your weeks to be here every Sunday morning? The Psalm gives us three reasons. First and foremost, it states the obvious. Know that the Lord, he is God. That should probably be reason enough for us to gather together and worship the Lord. But the Psalm goes on and says that he is our creator and we are his in saying that he is our creator he the psalmist the psalmist appeals to genesis 1 have you ever spent time and energy making something have you ever had pride that you feel in that you know you you spend hours tidying up something on the house or getting Christmas lights to work. Not that that's something I've spent time recently trying to do. (laughs) And you feel a joy in what you've done. And you want to say to everybody, look, look, I finally got those Christmas lights to work. Or something perhaps more valuable of your time. Or perhaps the parents' pride over a child or a loved one's pride over their their darlings' accomplishments. When we think of being God's creation, we remember that we as human beings hold a special part in the order of creation. And God delights in us. God delights in us because he has created us. He is our creator. That is a good reason to sing praises to him. That is a good reason to serve him with gladness. That is a good reason to make a joyful noise. But more than that, you are his. You belong to God because you have been created in his image and likeness. I've used this description before, but I think the more I thought about it, that it's worthy of being repeated. I don't know how many of you remember when Saddam Hussein was finally toppled and they showed an image of the people running into the center of his square, the city square, and pulling down his statue. If we understand biblical literature, we realize how poignant that moment was. But if we don't, we probably don't understand the cultural significance of a statue in the middle of a city square. For us, it's just a nice statue to remember something good or great that people have done in the past. We have a statue of a guy with a horse. The horse is weirdly standing on him, by the way, if you've never noticed. (laughs) But this says nothing other than the fact that we're a western town and we're proud of our cowboy heritage. But in the Middle East, and especially in the biblical world, a statue in the center of a town square told you who was in charge. And so, in the case of Saddam Hussein's statue being tumbled, it said Saddam was no longer in charge of that town. But there's a reason I'm telling you this story. Because you are created in the image and likeness of God. You are God's statue placed in the center of creation to tell who this world belongs to doesn't belong to you it doesn't belong to me it doesn't belong to kings or princes it doesn't belong to the powerful and the rich it belongs to god and you were placed here that all of creation might know that you and i and everything in this creation belongs to god Aren't those some good reasons? To be joyful in the Lord, to make a joyful noise before the Lord, to serve the Lord with gladness and come into his presence with singing? But it gets better. We are reminded of the Advent invitation. Our Advent procession reminds us of three comings. The coming of Christ into the world for the first time. Christ came into the world to save sinners that we might yet live but then he comes to us and he is in our lives he rests in our hearts and he makes us alive but there's a third coming Christ's return his return is all the more glorious his return is all the more beautiful His return is all the more significant. And verse 4, or perhaps 5, depending on how it breaks up in the Psalter, reminds us of what we are invited to in Christ. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Enter his gates. The end of Revelation describes the kingdom of heaven as it is united with the earth. And there is a city, the city of God. It describes his gates, 12 gates. It's significant, the number of the tribes of Israel, the number of the apostles. But the gates are open. The gates are wide open, but nothing unclean can enter into them that's a bit scary if we have a decent self-awareness we recognize our sin and our need for salvation and nothing unclean can enter into the kingdom of heaven and so how oh how can we enter into him? how can we accept this invitation to enter into his gates we are stained and fragmented statues we are broken statues and yet God has redeemed us. He is making us clean in Christ. It is in Christ that the image of God, which we have damaged and destroyed upon ourselves, is being restored. It is in Christ that we are made able to enter his gates, to enter his gates with thanksgiving. But there's more than that. He invites us into His court, into His holy court, the kingdom, the court, the kingly court of God. We see a few glimpses of the court itself in Scripture, but not enough to have a complete understanding. But we do know what happens there. It is there that God sits on His throne, that Christ reigns, and we can come into that once. The Holy of Holies was divided from every one of us. The Holy of Holies, where God's glory resided on earth, was a place where you and I could not enter. But in Christ, we are able to enter into His courts, into the courts of God, into the presence of His glory. What a thing to be thankful for! What a thing to praise him for. What a thing to make us joyful. What a thing to urge us on to serve him with gladness and sing praises to his name. And the psalm ends with a promise. The psalm ends, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever his faithfulness to all generations. The Lord is good in the purest and best sense of that. His mercy, his steadfast love endures forever. There is no end to his mercy. There is no end to his love. We see this in the Old Testament, in his dogged pursuit of his people. We see this in our own lives, that he does not give up on us, but renews our hearts week in and week out, day in and day out. His love is there for us, and his faithfulness never ends. Why would we not make a joyful noise? Why would we not serve him with gladness? Wouldn't we want to come in to his presence with joy? My dear friends, take the invitation of Psalm 100. Let us be marked with Christian joy. May you be marked with Christian happiness throughout the ages. For his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness never fails